All right, I want to invite you to take God's Word and turn with me to Luke chapter 22, Luke chapter 22, and as you're turning in your Bibles, uh, many of you may have a Bible that is referred to what we know as, know of as a red-letter edition Bible. Uh, those red-letter editions, when you get to the New Testament, specifically the Gospels, it goes from being in black and white to a bunch of red, because the red is meant to designate the words of Jesus. The red-letter edition of the Bible first appeared in 1899, and it is the result of the creativity and the work of a man by the name of Louis Klops. Klops was the editor of the Christian Herald magazine. He was friends and contemporaries with pastors like D.L. Moody, uh, Moody Bible Church there in Chicago. Uh, he was pastor, uh, uh, friends with T. DeWitt Talmadge, who was pastor at the Brooklyn Tabernacle, both great preachers. In his 18 years of leadership at the Christian Herald, he raised more than $3 billion for relief to the poor, which is a lot of money in the late 1800s, early 1900s, a lot of money now. But uh, his passion was getting the Bible into people's hands. That's what he wanted to do as a Christian publisher, he knew that there was great power when people read the Word of God. It's interesting, when I was studying this week, we have many people in our church uh, that serve and work with the Gideon's ministry, uh, men like Alex Ariaga and Mike Weber and Larry Forrester, and uh, the Gideon's ministry is meant for the same purpose, to distribute Bibles, get free Bibles into the hands of people. And so you may see them in uh, hospitals, and you may see them in hotels, or they're distributed in prisons to military personnel, to those that work in emergency personnel. Uh, we're going to highlight our Gideon's work on our Mission Sunday later uh, this year. But in studying for this uh, sermon this week, I found it very interesting that the Gideon's ministry was founded in 1890 the exact same year uh, that Klopp's had this passion to get the Bible into people's hands. God was doing something in that time period to make sure uh, that the Word of God was being distributed. And Klopp's was having his time alone with the Lord one day, and he came across this passage in Luke chapter 22, verse 20, where it says, And likewise, the cup, after they had eaten, saying, This cup that is poured out for you, is the new covenant in my blood. And the thought hit him, Holy Spirit inspired for sure. New covenant, New Testament poured out in my blood. What if we make the words of Jesus in red? Not to simply separate the words that were spoken by Jesus, but to signify his blood that was poured out on the cross. And this is where the red letter edition of the Bible began. And this is the heart uh, behind this new series that we're launching today, Words in Red, Seven Last Sayings from the Cross. Now, we are on our countdown to Easter. Starting this weekend, we are seven Sundays away uh, from Easter. And as you know, Easter is the day of all days where we get together and we celebrate the resurrection of Jesus. Now, I know we celebrate that every day as Christians. Every Sunday when we come together, we're celebrating the resurrection. But there's something special about Easter. It's like the Super Bowl, okay? Uh, speaking of the Super Bowl, God did what we asked last week. He gave us a good game and an Eagles loss. Uh, it was a good day. But you're either, oh, okay. Okay. Uh, Super Bowl, might as well throw the NBA championship, the World Series, here, throw in the World Cup. Easter's bigger than all of those put together. 
And so to prepare our hearts for Easter, we're going to look at these seven statements, seven sayings that Jesus made from the cross. They are words in red, and we're going to look at them in detail each week leading up to Easter. Now, we know that Jesus was on the cross for six long hours. And these statements, these last words of Jesus, you know, when last words are given, people tend to lean in. You don't forget last words. You hold on to them. And the first three statements that Jesus makes on the cross is made during the daytime. Jesus went to the cross around nine in the morning, and we know that he hung there until noon when it turned completely dark, until three in the afternoon. The first three sayings are made while he was on the cross in the day. The last four sayings were made while he hung on the cross while it was pitch black. The first three have to do with others. Jesus was speaking words of compassion. He was speaking words of conversion. We'll look at next week. Today you'll be with me in paradise. Speaking words of forgiveness, what we're going to look at here in just a moment. The last four had to deal with what Jesus was wrestling with personally as he hung on the cross. And this series, perhaps more than any series that I've preached in my three years here at Champion Forest, I would consider uh, sacred. The content of what we're discussing the next seven weeks is holy ground. It's ground zero for where God expressed his love in its ultimate way by Jesus laying down his life, taking on the sin of the world, taking on my sin, taking on your sin, and we see God the Father accepting the death of Jesus, the sacrifice of Jesus, so that our sins could be forgiven and we could be restored to a right relationship with God. If you're taking notes, the title of the message today is A Word of forgiveness. And as we make our way to the cross, I want you to put yourselves there. Up to this point, what has taken place is nothing but pain and torture. Crucifixion was excruciating, not just being nailed to the cross, but what led to the cross. We know that Jesus was flogged, many people not even making it past the flogging. Thorns were placed on his head and then nails into his wrist and his feet. Death by crucifixion was meant to be long. It was meant to be drawn out. It was meant to inflict as much pain as possible and to show no mercy until death would eventually come by asphyxiation. And this is just the physical side of the cross. This doesn't count, in Jesus' case, what he was dealing with spiritually, emotionally. Just think about it. He had been abandoned by those who were closest to him. He's being rejected by the very ones that he came to save. He's being ridiculed and mocked by the religious establishment, cursed and tortured by the Romans stripped of his clothing, hanging in a very public area. This is the type of death 
that Jesus endured. And Luke's gospel records for us the first words that he would speak after being abandoned, after being beaten, after being nailed to a cross. What would come from the lips of Jesus? And Luke's gospel records, Luke chapter 23 Starting in verse 33, first part of verse 34, when they came to the place that is called the skull, there they crucified him and the criminals, one on his right and one on his left. And Jesus said, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. Amazing. The first words from the lips of Jesus. The last words he would ever speak while physically on this earth were words of forgiveness. How different this must have been from every other person that the Romans had ever crucified. And crucifixion was reserved for hardened criminals. They were paying the penalty for a crime that they had rightly committed. Most criminals hardened by hatred and anger and bitterness. No doubt they hurled insults back at the crowd. Most criminals were known for spitting upon and cursing the soldiers that were killing them. We see this hostility in one of the criminals that were hanging next to Jesus. He begins to rail at Jesus. Luke chapter 23, verse 39, one of the criminals who were hanged railed at him. Saying, are you not the Christ? We'll look at this exchange more in detail next week. But needless to say, you see the hatred. You see the bitterness. The sheer anger welling up in this criminal. This is what these soldiers were used to hearing. This is what they were accustomed to seeing. Venom. Cursing. Hatred. Totally different, though is Jesus. Rather than spewing out words of anger, and by the way, Jesus is innocent. He was put on the cross and committed no crime. In fact, you read the context of the passage we're looking at today, Luke chapter 23, verses 13 through 25, on three different occasions, Pilate is going to say, I see no wrong in the man. He didn't do anything, he's innocent. And yet there he is hanging on the cross. And totally opposite than most that were put on the cross, Jesus is offering words of love and praying for forgiveness to the very ones that were rejecting and killing him. Now before we get into what forgiveness is, I want us to look at these words that Jesus says very closely, I want you to notice, first of all, that it's a prayer. When we see the prayer life of Jesus, this is not a one-time event. Jesus isn't going to his Father praying just because he's in a bind. The prayer life of Jesus is one that was consistent. It was routine. In fact, if you read uh, Luke chapter 5, verse 16, the Bibles say that he often withdrew. Some of your Bibles say he frequently withdrew to a place to pray. This was a practice of Jesus. He 
had a prayer life that was consistent, that was routine. And I just highlight this to say if Jesus, the Son of God, uh, needed a routine, constant, and consistent prayer life, how much more do me and you? So Jesus prays this prayer. But it's not just any prayer. Incidentally, the seven statements, the first statement is a prayer. Father, forgive them. They know not what they do. And it's book ended with a prayer. Father, into your hands, I commit my spirit. And so on the cross, the cross is saturated with prayer. This just isn't any kind of prayer. This is what we refer to as a prayer of intercession. I'm reading a book right now called Breakthrough Prayer by Pastor Jim Simbla, Brooklyn Tab. And I love reading, I love reading all kinds of books, Uh, but my favorite books to read are books that make me want to spend time alone with the Lord. My favorite authors are those who over time I read them and I want to put their book away so that I can spend time with the Lord. This is one of those books. Simbla is one of those writers. He makes me want to spend time with Jesus. And he talks about the importance of what it means to call on the name of the Lord. You know, we need to be taught how to pray. Prayer is both taught and caught. When the disciples come to Jesus during the Lord's Prayer, they said, teach us to pray. And that's where we get the Lord's Prayer. And so intercession is just one type of prayer. There are prayers of confession, where we confess our sins before the Lord. We recognize his holiness in our life and how far we fall short. There are prayers of praise, Uh, when we think about the attributes of God, his holiness, his character, we can praise him for who he is. There There are prayers of worship, like when we sing these songs that we just lifted up, they're actually prayers that we're lifting up to the Lord. Praise and worship are closely aligned. There's prayers of thanksgiving, where we think about the Lord and we're thankful for who he is and what he's done. We sing about that, what he's done. Those are prayers of thanksgiving. There's prayers of petition, Uh, Petition is where we ask for ourselves in the Lord's Prayer. Give us this day our daily bread. We're asking on our behalf. Well, here Jesus prays a prayer of intercession. And intercession is where we pray for others. Isn't it amazing that on the cross, when his blood is being poured out, He doesn't petition for himself. He doesn't ask his father to lessen the torture. He doesn't ask his father to remove the suffering. As a matter of fact, he doesn't pray for himself at all. Instead, he prays for others. And he asks God his father to forgive them for they do not know what they are doing. J.C. Ryle said this, as soon as the blood of the great sacrifice began to flow, the great high priest began to intercede. Because that's what high priests do. They intercede to God on behalf of the people. And Jesus is exercising in this moment his ministry as an intercessor. This is actually fulfilled prophecy, Jesus' prayer life on the cross. In Isaiah chapter 53, great chapter in the Bible known as Calvary's chapter in the Old Testament. It's it's a prophecy of the Messiah to come. It's where we get the term suffering servant. And in that passage of Scripture, right near the middle of it, there is this prophecy of the Messiah praying for those who would transgress, praying for his transgressors. Listen to it, Isaiah 53, 11 and 12. Out of the anguish of his soul, he shall see and be satisfied. By his knowledge shall the righteous one, my servant, make many to be accounted righteous. 
and he shall bear their iniquities. That's what he's doing on the cross. He's bearing our iniquities, the sin of the world on his shoulders. Therefore, the scripture says, I will divide him a portion with the many and he shall divide the spoil with the strong because he poured out his soul to death. And look at this, was numbered with the transgressors, yet he bore the sin of many and makes intercession for the transgressors. Jesus praying for those that would oppose him, that are ridiculing him, that are putting him on the cross. Jesus praying for the forgiveness of God on their behalf is simply fulfilled prophecy. He is showing in this moment that he is the Messiah. He is the Son of God. You can see it right here from the cross. You can hear it in the words from the cross. This is a prayer of intercession. Jesus was praying for others on the cross then. And if you're wondering what Jesus is doing now, like right now, he is continuing this ministry of intercession. He is our great high priest. Hebrews chapter seven, verse 25. Consequently, he is able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through him since he always lives to make intercession for them. Right now, Jesus is interceding for you. As his word is being preached, Jesus, the son of God, is interceding that his word would take root in your heart. Whatever needs you're facing, whatever you're up against, Jesus is praying for you right now. Amazing thought. Uh, we have right down the great hall of our church, uh, we have a prayer room. It's uh, open 24 hours a day, seven days a week. And it's actually what inspired our forward project because I was walking around here one day and it seemed like for the first year, every time I walked around here, I found a new door to something. And I found this prayer room and they began to tell me that Champion Forest was built on the ministry of prayer. And so when we moved to this location, Pastor Damon Shook made sure that there was a prayer uh, room built there. And I was looking and I thought, man, we need to we need to upgrade. We need to update this and make sure where we're at. And that's coming along in this phase of our forward project. We're getting ready to update our prayer room. And we're going to make sure that you know about it and that you can get to it. And you can come up anytime you want and get in that room and intercede for your church. Intercede for people in your life. It's the ministry of intercession. You tell me, with Jesus praying for you right now, Interceding on your behalf, you tell me what habits you can't kick. You tell me what addiction you can't break. You tell me what mountain is too high, what hurdle is too tough. With Jesus interceding for you, it's a wonderful truth that Jesus, the Son of God, is making intercession for us right now. In this prayer, he uses the term Father. Father, forgive them. It's revolutionary to think of God as Father. The people of Jesus' day, they didn't think of God as Father. God was the creator of the heavens and the earth, sure. But he was, he was distant. He was far away. No one ever referred to God as Father, and yet Jesus, when he comes on the scene, his very first sermon, if you read Matthew 5, 6, and 7, over and over and over and over, he refers to God as Father, revolutionary teaching. I don't know what kind of earthly father you have. 
You hear me talk about my dad all the time, a hero to me, loved my dad, close relationship with my dad, grateful for the influence of my dad. But some of you, you weren't that fortunate. You hear about an earthly father and the heavenly father characterized as such, there's a disconnect for you. Because your earthly father wasn't there for you, didn't believe in you, in some cases abandoned you, abused you. And you think, father? But the scripture's so clear that God is no ordinary father. He's not distant. He's not aloof. He knows. He cares. He's not absent or abusive. And in the moment of Jesus experiencing this excruciating pain, physically, emotionally, spiritually, it's just normal and natural for him to cry out, Father, Father. Hey, question. Is God your father? I mean, think about this. We know that we are all God's children in the sense that he creates us specially and uniquely and specifically knit us together in our mother's womb, every single one of us. We are, by creation, children of God. But that doesn't mean we're children of God by relationship. You have to become a child of God. That's why the Bible speaks of being born again. You have to believe in God, not just with your head, but with your heart. You receive him into your life. You say, I'm following you, Jesus. You're going to be the Lord of my life. John chapter 1, verse 12. But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. That's when you become a child of God. When you believe and receive. Are you a child of the living God? Is God your father? Now, it's very interesting to me that Jesus says, Father, forgive them. Jesus was the Son of God. 100% man, 100% God. So why, when he was on the cross, did he not say, I forgive you? He had the authority to forgive sin. He had the power to forgive sin. Why did he say, Father, forgive him? Why didn't he just say, I forgive you? You remember Matthew chapter 9, those friends want to get their paralyzed friend to Jesus, and so they open a hole in the roof, and they lower him down. Do you remember that exchange? Matthew chapter 9, verse 2, behold, some people brought to him a paralytic lying on a bed, and when Jesus saw their faith, he said to the paralytic, take heart, my son, your sins are forgiven. And if you remember, the religious authorities lost their mind. Who can forgive sin? How can he say this? Only God can forgive sin. In Jesus, Matthew chapter 9, verse 6, but you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. He then said to the paralytic, rise, pick up your bed, and go home. And so in this moment, Jesus demonstrates that he he is God. He has the authority and the right to forgive sin. So why didn't he shout from the cross, I forgive you? Why did he say, 
Father, forgive them. In this, we see the wonder of our Savior. In this, we see the humility of Jesus. Because on the cross, he was in that moment totally emptying himself of divine authority and right in identifying with us as humanity. Do you remember Philippians chapter 2, verse 6 through 8? Paul writes, and he says, though he was in the form of God, speaking of Jesus, he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but he made himself nothing. He emptied himself. In this moment on the cross, he is giving up his authority and right as God. He didn't give up being God, but he gave up his authority and his right as God and identified completely with us and allowed his life to be taken. He willingly laid it down to purchase our redemption. So he prays, Father, forgive them. They know not what they do. Notice he doesn't pray, Father, judge them. Father, pay them back for what they're doing. He says, Father, forgive them. Forgiveness is man's deepest need. It's the reason Jesus came. He came to forgive sin. Sin had to be paid for. Had to be accounted for. And there's no other way that a sinful man or a sinful woman could be restored to a right relationship with God. Deep down, at the very root of people's longing and spiritual search, is a desire for forgiveness. A desire to be made right with God and Jesus sheds his blood for us on a cross and accomplishes for us what we could never accomplish for ourselves and that is forgiveness and a restored relationship to our Father who is in heaven. And so when Jesus prays, Father, forgive them, what he's praying is, God, let my death, let my blood satisfy your wrath let me pay the full penalty for their sin Jesus knew sin could not be overlooked that's not justice sin had to be paid for the wages of sin is death there had to be a death and so Jesus comes and he pays our debt in full and prays father forgive Give them, and in praying, Father, forgive them. He is praying, You pave the way, oh God, by sacrificing me. Jesus, I wrote this down. I wrote this down here in my notes. I write everything down in my notes, but I say that to say this is important, all right? The prayer for forgiveness of the sinner, think about this. The prayer for forgiveness of the sinner, when Jesus prays, Father, forgive them, He is green lighting. 
for God the Father to continue crushing him. Because John 10 says, I lay my life down. No one takes it from me. I willingly lay it down. So when Jesus prayed on the cross, Father, forgive them, he was giving God the Father the green light to continue crushing him on our behalf. Do you see why this is holy ground? Do you see why this is so sacred? Do you see why sin is so serious? Why it can't be overlooked? God doesn't turn a blind eye to sin. It costs Jesus his life, Ephesians 1, 7, in him, in Christ. We have redemption. We've been bought back through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses. May this truth be seared upon our hearts today. The severity of our sin. Your sin, my sin. The offense that it is to God. And we shouldn't overlook it or coddle it, or think that it's no big deal, or that no one sees, and no one knows, and it's not hurting anyone, and I've got it under control. We see on the cross the severity of sin, the penalty of sin, Jesus bearing the wrath of God. Praise God for this prayer of intercession. Father, forgive them. Because in that prayer of forgiveness, when God does forgive, according to the scripture, Psalm 103, verse 12, as far as east is from the west, so far does he remove our transgressions from us. In as simple terms as I can say, the word forgiveness means letting go. And when Jesus says, Father, forgive, let go of the offense of sin, the penalty of sin against them. Put it on me. Forgive them. Now we've got to answer the question, who is them? This is a question that's been asked through the ages. Who's accountable for Jesus' death? Who is them? Well, in the immediate context, the Roman soldiers that were actually crucifying Jesus, they're in them. Includes the Jew, Jewish people that put this plan together and the shouts of the crowd that said, crucify them. They're included in that little pronoun, them. Forgive them. It includes Pilate and Herod and those who could have stepped in and stopped it but chose not to. They're included in that little pronoun, them. But it's not just those that were there that day. Them includes me and you. Our sin, your sin, my sin, put Jesus on the cross. We're in that pronoun, them. Philip Ryken, pastor and commentator writer said this, there is room for every sinner in that little word, them. And therefore, many people have crawled inside that blessed pronoun to find the forgiveness of their sins. Spurgeon, preaching on this verse, said that he loved the indistinctiveness of it. Listen to what he wrote. 
now into that pronoun them. I feel I can crawl. Can you get there? Oh, by a humble faith, appropriate, appropriate the cross of Christ by trusting in it and get in that. I love this big little word, them. You remember years ago when The Passion of the Christ came out, Mel Gibson movie? He's got the resurrection coming out next year. But in The Passion of the Christ, if you remember, they stretched his arm out. And when they were nailing Jesus, you see the Roman soldier holding on to the arm of Jesus while that nail was being pierced in. And you can see uh, the picture there on the screen. There at the bottom in the middle, nobody knew it because all you saw was the hand in the movie, but it was Mel Gibson holding the nail. And he did that to show that he was there. That's our hand holding that nail, driving it in to the wrist of Jesus. Them includes me and you. This prayer was prayed, the verb in its imperfect tense, meaning past continuous action. Some believe that Jesus was repeating this prayer over and over and over again on the cross. And so every time he was spit upon, Father, forgive them, they know not what they do. Every time he was reviled, Father, forgive them, they know not what they do. Every time a nail went in, Father, forgive them, they know not what they do. Those crucifying Jesus had no idea the magnitude of their sin, the enormity of it. Totally ignorant of it. But just because they were ignorant of what they were doing in the moment didn't mean they were not responsible for their sin. And the same is true for me and you. We will be held accountable for our sin if we don't trust in Jesus by faith and allow him to take it. Sins of omission, sins of commission, sins that we know that we do, sins that we don't know that we do. A.W. Pink said this, sin is always sin in the sight of God, whether we're conscious of it or not. Sins of ignorance need atonement just as truly as do conscious sins. God is holy and he will not lower his standard of righteousness to the level of our ignorance. Ignorance is not innocence. The first statement of the cross is a prayer of forgiveness. Was the prayer answered? Well, yes. We'll look at it next week, but a criminal says, remember me when you come into your kingdom. And he said, today you'll be with me in paradise. After his death, there's an earthquake and a Roman soldier who was there looks at Jesus and says, truly this is the Son of God. Confesses sin. I believe God the Father answering that prayer. These two men, their sin is forgiven. 3,000 at Pentecost come to know Jesus. There had to be some in that crowd that were there that day yelling crucify. Every time someone comes to know Christ, when you prayed to receive Jesus as Lord and Savior of your life and you trusted in his death, his burial, his resurrection to forgive your sin and make you right with God, God the Father was answering the prayer of Jesus that day. Yesterday when those preteen kids prayed to receive Christ, God the Father was answering the prayer of Jesus from the cross. Now, very quickly and in closing, let me give you some application here and we'll be done. And the application is very simple, but I warn you, it's not easy. Here's the application to Father, forgive them, they know not what they do. Here's the application the forgiven, forgive. Erwin Lutzer in his book, 
Christ from the cross said, forgiveness sounds like a marvelous idea until you're the one that has to do it. And isn't it true? Every one of us in here have been hurt, have experienced offense, have been lied to, betrayed, cheated upon, abused. And the Bible clearly states that those who have experienced the forgiveness of Christ, it's not a suggestion, it's not advice, it's a command that we should forgive others. It doesn't say we forget the pain that they caused us, that's impossible. It doesn't say that we got to call and encourage them once a week, we ain't doing that either. But what it does mean is we let go of the pain. We give up. We give up our right to recall the wrong that's been done to us. This past week, I had the opportunity to speak to a master's level class at Southern Methodist University. I do this for a buddy of mine every semester, teaches conflict dispute resolution and as part of their master's level seminar, they talk about bringing parties to the table to resolve conflict. And so one of the sessions is on forgiveness. And he knows my story, and so he brings me in every semester, and there's about 20 students in that class, and I'm over Zoom, and I get to address that class, and I'm very honest with them. And I say it just like this. Hey, listen, as I begin this talk, I want you to know cards on the table, I'm a Christian. And what being a Christian means is that we believe that Jesus is God and that he left heaven and he came to earth and he died on a cross for our sins. And he, was, he died, he was buried, and he was raised to life. We believe that message. I get to preach the gospel like in the first three minutes. It's awesome. And I say, I just tell you that because my perspective on forgiveness, this is where it comes from. And I begin to tell them my story that I've shared from this platform on a number of occasions. I was sexually abused by a coach in Little League from the ages of 8 to 12 and never told a soul until I was 19. In the process of going to authorities and making sure that justice was served, because I do believe in justice being served, I was able to have a conversation with the coach that uh, abused me. And I was able to confront him one-on-one and talk about how he hurt me what I believe he took from me. In that same conversation, I was able to share the gospel and I was able to say, you know what? I forgive you. Because when I look at Jesus and I see him on the cross and I I know my own thoughts and I know the depravity of my own heart, if God can forgive me, who am I to not be able to forgive someone else? The forgiven, forgive. Jesus in the Lord's Prayer, let us forgive all of our debts. He prays God, forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. Forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us. And the only commentary he gives to the Lord's Prayer, the only commentary he adds there is to this 
passage, and it's in verses 14 and 15. Listen to what he says. If you forgive others their trespasses, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive others their trespasses, neither will your Father forgive your trespasses. Jesus knew this would be a very tough subject for us to grasp, the fact that we have to let go of pain and let go of hurt and let go of offense. And I am not saying that it's easy. It's not. It's not just like a light switch that you flip one day and you say, okay, I can do it. It's a process, and it takes the healing power of Christ. And the way I like to say it is if you're working on forgiveness, you are. But I'm telling you, the application, his father said, forgive them. They know not what they do. God forgave us of our sin. And I know it's hard, but that's why we can look to the cross, and we can listen to the words in red. And we can say, God, if you can forgive me, I can forgive. The forgiven, forgive. I'm watching all over the country this revival, this spiritual waking is taking place. Places like Asbury, College in Kentucky, places like Lee University in Tennessee. I'm hearing about it in Cedarville in Ohio, all over the country. Spiritual revival and awakening. And we hunger for it, don't we? God. I'm going to bring it to Houston, man. Bring it to Houston. But revival, honest to goodness, it's, it's, a, it's an old thought, but it, it's true. It starts with me and you. Like, we, it's that old saying, you draw a circle around yourself and you don't leave it until the person in the middle is right with God. And some of us, we could have revival and spiritual awakening in our own hearts and lives and our families. If we draw that circle around and we get alone with God, and we forgive some of the hurt and the pain and betrayal that is ours. It's the call of God on our life. Father, forgive them. They know not what they do. Thank you for joining us online. We hope today's experience encouraged and challenged you. At Champion Forest, we are passionate about all kinds of people coming to know God, to grow in their relationship with Him and others, and then to go out and make a difference in the world. We would love the opportunity to talk and pray with you. To connect with us, just go to championforce.org connect. And hey, of course, we can't wait to welcome you on campus, in person, on one of our locations. We'll see you soon.